0: Hello everyone. Welcome to 26.1 AI Podcast. Today we have with us Matthew Rocklin and Hugo Bound anderson of the COIL team. And just to highlight for uh, supporting startups, if you do anything in your enterprise that handles data, talk to them. Welcome, Matt Welcome and Hugo. Welcome, guys. Is Brian,
1: Brian Ray here and Don Shu? And uh, we're doing our first interview with two people simultaneously. So uh, let's start with with you, Matt, and then uh, um, tell us about how you met Hugo.
2: Yeah, hi, everyone. Uh, My name is Matt. Uh, I don't actually remember where I met Hugo, probably at some PyData conference. Uh, So yeah, I've worked in the PyData space for a long time. I then sort of uh, worked on and maintained Dask for parallel computing. And then we sort of made this company coiled. Uh, Hugo, when where do we meet each other? Can you help me out?
3: I, I can. I can. I, I remember where, where we met because I was working at DataCamp at the time. We we're doing online data science education and working on a collaboration with what was then Continuum Analytics, uh, where, where you were at the time. And I wanted to do a DAS course. And I sent you an email. We're both going to be at ODSC Boston. And we sat down. I showed you the platform and we had a good chat. And I remember having dinner with you, and I, I think we've discussed this. And you don't recall this evening, but I had dinner with you and Andy Muller, who's a, as as you all may know, a core contributor and co maintainer of Scikit Learn. I, I just sat there feeling like listening to you two riff about how to, you know, distribute do distributed compute for machine learning in in, in the in the PI Data stack down on the waterfront in, in Boston. And it was it was a it was an incredible meal, a real experience for me um, that you don't remember at all. <laughs> <laughs> but, that's, but all jokes aside that's how, how we initially met but we we then made a course together on on, on dask at, at, at data camp um and you know hung out at conferences and went out for drinks and dinner and, and, and that type of stuff and always enjoyed chatting um and then one thing led to another this year you were you 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 uh, were securing funding for, for, for a company. Um that at that point you wanted to name snake oil, which I love but pulled you back from. Um and we ended up starting to build coil together, where where we are now.
0: Matt, so- Higo, I've been reading some of your writing, and both of you are wonderful writers. I'd like to highlight that. But we actually, maybe also share how how that came about is that your academic backgrounds? Both of you are PhDs. I love this comment because <laughs>
3: <laughs> because yeah, you you tell him, Matt.
2: So Hugh and I have have extremely different writing styles, and prolix. we're both relatively opinionated about those writing styles. Mm-hmm. I am maybe more concise. While Hugo's maybe a bit more uh, floral. Maybe would be a right a good term verbose um, prolix. Verbose. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so we actually, we argue a ton about our collective style, the style of coiled. And I think, as we all know, sort of constrained creativity ends up hopefully producing something that's better than than otherwise. So between us, hopefully we're both concise and exciting. That's, I think, the goal. Go ahead.
3: Something I value in in, in Matt's writing, what I'm learning about is, is precision as well. I'll describe things, the same thing in three different ways to try to get the message across. Whereas Matt will be very precise, laser precision in order to, Hit the nail on the head um, immediately, which I think, particularly in you know, I suppose what we call the attention economy now, um, is 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 even more more important.
1: So right? Matt, your title on the Coiled website is Task Scheduler Extraordinaire.
3: Any comments on that?
2: Yeah, we were trying to find sort of fun, uh, fun, pithy uh, descriptions of ourselves. Uh, so it, it's a it's a joke because I, I write. Dask, which is a, a task scheduler under the hood. That's like the thing that Dask does. It, it runs uh, code in parallel with the task scheduling framework. It's maybe like the next iteration of like a MapReduce kind of thing. Beyond MapReduce, there's task schedulers. Uh, but now as someone running a company, I mostly just handle calendar events and try to connect people and, and do a lot of task scheduling in sort of meat space or in human space. And so I think a lot about... You know, scheduling and making sure things get done, and that's you know, I sort of changed from being a programmer to a human or organization programmer.
1: So you're, a, you're a clock watcher, not a Gill watcher, but a clock watcher. So, and Hugo, your your title is head of data science evangelism and marketing, and I and I love that title, but what does that mean?
3: What does that do? It's 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 a mouthful. There's there's a lot to un, un, unpack in there. I, I think um, the way I like to think about it is that web building um, a company uh, around um, an an open source technology and trying to connect uh, the enterprise organizations, researchers with open source technology and the open source community. So as a marketer, um, as the head of marketing, uh, I want to get as many um, people as possible interested in the product coiled. Um, As the head of evangelism, I want to get as many people interested in open source technology uh, as possible. And I think combining both of those, I joke that I'm kind of like, um, it's a horrible thing to say, actually, because I, I joke that I'm kind of like Two-Face in, in Batman, but I'm the good version, right? Um, and the way I, I, I think about it is that there, there are certain trade-offs in, in, in wearing both these hats. But ideally, all of us are working to find a way that um, open source and the enterprise and organizations can, can work together a, a, as well as possible. Um, and I'm kind of on the, the communication, evangelism, and, and marketing side of that.
0: This is a great tee up for a question I've been wanting to ask in preparation for this episode. Dennis Ritchie once said the most important part of Bell Labs was the break room because their serendipitous conversations happened, and some real breakthroughs came through from that. I, I I noticed I noticed in reading. Both of your writing, both of you describe these conversations you've had with people in open source and how that's influenced your career paths and your projects. Care to highlight some of those conversations? Like I I saw a lot of um, input from Andy Mueller, for example. Matt? Sure. I think...
2: That's a that's that's an interesting question. Uh, I would say Good open source So there's this idea of like Bell Labs was very creative, right? They made a bunch of game-changing things that weren't sort of known before I think the work that I have done is actually quite different Uh, I think a lot of the scientific Python space Came out of a lot of pressure from problems We're just talking to people. It was very clear what had to be done and then needed to make something that was well engineered and ergonomic enough to, to fit those needs. I think that we've actually been relatively uncreative in a way that Bell Labs has been creative. I think that is actually maybe some of the strength of the sort of Pi Data sci Pi space in how, uh, again, not necessarily spontaneous or, or, or in creative we've been, but in how sensitive we've been or in how receptive we've been a lot of the needs of sort of everyday scientists, which eventually translate into the needs of data scientists. So I might sort of push back a little bit on the on the premise of the question.
3: And I'll also add that to to see that in kind of it's almost primordial form. All you need to do is go to Austin in summer. Well, not now, of course, but um, given given COVID. But go to, go to the SciPy conference and see how how a lot of what has happened and what 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 is happening now in the developed community is is from really urgent scientific research needs. Um, and I think IPython back in the day is is, is an incredible example. Matplotlib. Um, I, I mean, I remember speaking once with Skipper Seabold about why he developed stats models, or Wes McKinney about why he d- developed pandas and it arose out of like serious pressing needs for for, for this type of tooling in, in the space.
0: Yeah, good answer. It, that's a nice contrast that you make about how Bell Labs was this sort of very open space where they were finding kind of solutions to problems that didn't even exist yet. And where in open source, you're responding very directly to the community. That's, that's great. And the community Thank relationships
3: you. are very important. Mentorships. I mean, I mentioned Travis Oliphant, and he's someone who, for, for Travis, I think um, the PyData Data Space is also an extended family. Um, which is incredibly important. The idea of community and, and mentorship is incredibly in, in, important there also. And once again, you go to the conferences and you get, get this feel. Um,
1: Does DAS compete with uh, Spark, do you believe?
2: <laughs> that's like a complete... Um, that's, a, that's a very interesting uh, conversation twist. Uh, uh, but to answer the question, though, yes, DAS competes with Spark and not. They handle some overlapping use cases, you know, like ETL for data frames, and they also diverge in what they handle. So, you know, Spark is gonna be a better, you know, SQL database kinds of system. Dask does that a bit, but it's not a proper SQL system. But Dask will handle a lot more unstructured data better or do more sort of ad hoc computation better.
1: And I'll connect that back to the previous conversation. So I know the Spark community and Apache community and other things Mm -hmm. like that, they have great force, great momentum. what do, What is it, how does an open source project and the mentality around the scientific computing community gel with that? Is it distinctly different? Are they meant to be playing well together or or whatnot?
2: Yeah, that's a, like, you're getting into, like, a very deep, interesting question there. Uh, like Apache, Apache was, projects like Spark came out of the needs of lots of sort of large web scale or you know, maybe more advanced uh, companies. They come out of business business processing. And Spark handles a lot of the sort of, you know, business analytics problems you'd expect to be solved there. Um, they tend to be a bit more monolithic, I would say, those packages. Uh, like Spark does all the things. You're intended to use just Spark on its own. Maybe you attach to, to Hive or to, you know, um, some other technologies, but you're sort of just, just installing Spark. I think a lot of the, the scientific computing or the PyData packages had a much more federated structure. It was, you know, a couple of graduate students in a lab that made IPython, which then eventually turned into Jupiter. There was, you know, a few neuroscientists who made, you know, scikit-learn. And there was a lot more of a, like a community bizarre feel to that group. There was no money behind any of it. There was really no organization. There was a much more of a, a coalescing of individuals and groups. And, uh, and an agreement on on standard conventions, and so I think that difference of sort of top down design for Spark, uh, or you know the other sort of Apache projects, to I think a, a slightly different community feel, without the presence of money originally, just created different a different communal structure and as a result a different uh, software architecture.
3: And I'll just build on that briefly by saying. Um... Matt has Matt has written a really interesting blog post called A Brief History of DAS that if you're interested in what I'm saying here, you can check out on, on our blog, coil.io. Well,
1: and also there's an article, not to interrupt, but there's also an article on there that do we really need distributed machine learning? That's by
3: uh, you and Andre. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, yeah, there, we're definitely um, very interested in, in in the community aspects of this. But what, one of the points that, that Matt made is that you know, this DAS came out of, uh, and correct me with any details, I'm, I'm mistaking Matt, but out of, you know, people sitting sitting down at the time, including, you know, Peter and, and Travis and, and Matt and a whole bunch of people and thinking about how do we scale the PI data stack? It wasn't how do we necessarily, you know, solve these big data problems, but it also came from the PI data e- ecosystem. Um, and so there were technical goals, right? One to harness the power of all the cores of a local local workstation in parallel, another to support larger than memory computation. But there was also a social goal, which Matt mentions in, in this poach, which which I love. It was to invent nothing, uh, and I quote: Matt wrote, "We wanted to be as familiar as possible to what users already knew in, in the Py data stack." Uh, so, for example, if you if you already write your NumPy code, then you uh, you import a Dask array, and most of your code remains the same. On top of that, it's actually for the most part running uh, NumPy, but behind the scenes. So your mental model of what's what's happening is actually what, what's happening, and you don't have to necessarily solve. Um, Java errors
0: when important. Matt, maybe remind the listeners how many lines of code you wrote for the first version of Dask. <laughs>
2: yeah, it was a it was a, 14, a 14 line commit, I think, which was the first Dask task scheduler, um, which could which could run you know interesting programs that then could work with NumPy, could work with Pandas, and try to scale them out a little bit uh, to maybe like bring those two things to get your your comment and Hugo's comment to t- together. Um, you know, Dask is actually relatively small, right? Something like Spark had to reinvent a lot of code that was in Pandas or was in NumPy or was in Tornado or was in some other libraries. And Dask was a question of, well, what's the minimum amount we can add to these existing software packages and this existing software ecosystem to scale out the existing uh, community of packages? It was a different kind of problem to solve rather than sort of a de novo creation of a completely separate software stack.
1: Is there, I think Guido said once there should be, or maybe this is from Python community, there should be one and only one way to do things. And then I see things like Modin and Arrow and a lot of tools on top of tools today. Are we moving towards one good solid way to do things or are we moving apart from that?
2: Yeah, I think think even at the time when that was written, that still wasn't true. I think there's always been many ways to do things Uh, in Python and doing, there's also many ways to do things in sort of the PyData or SciPy stack as well. What I think binds us together is common conventions, right? And so there's things like the NumPy API or the Pandas API, which might be shared. Or there's things, you know, like, like Arrow is trying to build a convention around memory transfer that can be used with Pandas and with Spark and with Rapids and with other projects. And so I think the real cohesion, the one way, is about bridges. It's about these conventions and protocols rather than about libraries. And that's where I think we're seeing a lot of software, a lot of successful software ecosystems being designed around. It's around conventions rather than libraries.
3: And I love that you mentioned the one way to do thing because I one of the places that you're referencing it from, I think, is actually the Zen of Python. And I think what it says, there should be one, and preferably only one, obvious way to do it. And I love that because it says there should be one obvious way to do it. Um, but it, then it says preferably only one, because you, you've got a bunch of ways to do things, right? To do any any one thing. But you want one obvious way that you gravitate towards. And I think that's what Matt's speaking to in, in terms of shared conventions and shared foundations and shared language as well.
0: And I was there, since we're getting into Python stereotypes a little bit, at PyCon in 2016 when Ryan texted David Beasley, teasing him that your your friend the Gill is hmm. going away. How much what the PyData stack and Coil and Dask is doing is making that, that assertion that Python is not performant kind of trivial.
2: I think that, so I think the gill has not been a problem in the PyData SciPy stack for many years, right? Most of the code that we write is actually written in C or Fortran or LLVM or CUDA. We just use Python to direct that code, right? When you're calling NumPy or, P- or Pandas functions, or scikit-learn, you're not actually really calling Python. The gil is not present there. You can run many scikit-learn functions in parallel in one process and saturate a 40-core machine. So the gil isn't really a problem in the sci sci-fi space. It is if you're like handling text, but if we're working on numeric data, it's fine. I think what we're seeing, to maybe go a little bit beyond your question, we're actually starting to see the Python data science stack, you know, of which Dask and Coral are a part, but only a part, we're seeing that stack actually start to beat the more high-performance stacks. You know, one example of this is is Rapids, right? Rapids is a GPU accelerated variant of the PyData stack. So, you know, they've got GPU accelerated Pandas, GPU accelerated NumPy, GPU accelerated Scikit-Learn, XGBoost, etc. And when you scale those things out with Dask, you know, we're starting to see our sort of community of projects just crush benchmarks i think nvidia published benchmarks are on the tpc XPV benchmark which simulates a sort of data science-y machine learning workload i think they're trying to simulate a large bank and i think in that workload they get something like you know 20x faster performance with a machine that's maybe like three times more expensive so sort of a, a 7x uh cheaper experience and this is on a benchmark where you know the previous winners were you know a variety of companies trying to cobble together you know hardware and spark or hardware and hadoop to try to handle these benchmarks and they were trying to compete for you know 10% 20% wins over each other and just you know hammering those things with teams of engineers the fact that the, the this python driven stack walks in and just crushes it to a 20x multiple is showing that you know it's not it's not that you know, Python can be slow, but the community approach that we've taken of grabbing you know, some CUDA engineers from NVIDIA, some distributed systems engineers from Coiled, some, some UI experts from the community, uh, you know, Blazing SQL, all these different groups, and throwing them together in this sort of mishmash of software projects that work really well together, that approach is just fundamentally more powerful than a really well-crafted C++ code base.
1: Well, let's talk a bit about the where it runs. Now, um, I think Don told me you guys are on AWS. Where does the cloud and the hyperscalers come into play with computation and the future of doing some of these solving these hard problems? Are they critical players, or is it just is it doesn't does it not matter?
2: Yeah. So there's. Uh, there's a few different things we could get into there for a second. So I'm going to like explicitly call out dask versus coiled just for a second because I think you're sort of making that that jump. So tools like dask deploy on a variety of different architectures, Kubernetes, Yarn, Slurm, lots of different things. If you've got a if you have any software that manages a bunch of machines, dask can run on that software today. What we've found though is that uh, that requires a level of expertise that is relatively rare. There are relatively few organizations, sorry, there are, there are very many organizations that have the need to compute on large amounts of data with a large large number of computers, but relatively few of those organizations actually have the skill sets to stand up a bunch of machines on AWS or on Azure or on GCP and then manage those in anything resembling human efficiency. Uh, they usually sort of start trying, it becomes a pain in the butt, they want to stop doing that. And that's where that's where s- companies like Coil can step in. Right, we've done that in I don't know how many companies historically before, and we're just productizing that sort of common process. So we provide all of the sort of stuff that you need around Dask to run it in, a, in an effective way. You know, security, managing software, managing teams, getting better telemetry off of everything. Um, and that sort of, that productization actually increases accessibility quite a bit. You can now be an individual and have the same capability that you know, like Google has, Or you can be an individual or a small team and have the same capability that, that Uber has. And that sort of uh, leveling of the playing field or that democratization is what I think really excites me today in that now these technologies are becoming a lot more uh, accessible to, to everybody.
3: And that opens up the world of Dask to a whole new breed of people as well who don't necessarily, aren't able to get into the weeds with all the like DevOps and Kubernetes and, and containerization and all, all, all of this stuff. So one way to think about it is we take the DevOps out of getting your clusters up and, up and running. Um, via you know, one click or even zero click hosted, hosted deployments. And I do have to give a shout out to, I don't know whether it was you or James who, who, who was responsible for something as wonderful Matt, as pip install coiled, which allows you to get up and running from wherever you pip install uh, immediately with uh, a DAS cluster.
1: I tried that, I think it's brilliant and, and hats off to you guys on that. But on the note of the future, like where we're going, I'm gonna have two questions and you can answer them simultaneously, but I always like to ask this, first off, yeah, in parallel with Dask, please answer these questions. What uh, one is usually around where you see the the AI hype going and tightly coupled with that oftentimes is what are your fears about where AI hype is going? Do you have any precautionary tales? Do you worry about um, where people are taking it at all?
0: Well, Brian, I wanna prep you that hugo gave a talk about um is data scientists the most dangerous job of the 21st century that,
3: well that's a, that, that is true i mean you know data science is creating a lot of a lot of different things in in the world um and um but i'm, I'm actually interested in what your definition of ai is because we can we can slice that so, so many ways and people mean so many different things when, when they use that term.
1: when, when i when i say AI, i mean machine learning on top of machine learning mm. That's my definition, Yeah, where it's coupled, where, where there's some sort of stacking of predictions. That's my definition. Yeah, yeah, but I might be
0: wrong. I don't know. <laughs>
2: I'll have to admit, I do not understand the definition of machine learning on top of machine learning. So we have to dive into that a little bit.
0: <sighs> you should hold Brian's feet to the fire. So we're talking about predictive analytics, well, essentially,
3: <laughs> in, in, in this framework.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's become a, well, it, it was passe when there was an AI winter. Well, there was two of them. There have been three. I they think they just... I it, say the
3: fourth one's coming. Hasn't there? <laughs> the AI winter is coming. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I just believe
1: when you're talking about AI, in my, my mind, it has some sort of human in the loop element. And it also may have more than one prediction behaving together for a solution versus when, when I think about machine learning, I think about a model that returns a a number or a category
3: period. That's that's my definition. I don't know if I'm right or not on that. Yeah, but I, I, I like that for, we can talk about machine learning. I think AI probably can, you know, other people incorporate a, a variety of, uh, of different things. Um, people use it relatively liberally, but I think machine learning, like any technology can be used for, for great stuff. It can be used for dangerous stuff. I think one of the big challenges is it does stuff really quickly at scale in ways that humans really haven't been able to do before. Um, and it does it a lot of the time without necessarily being able to be uh, diagnosed or, or looked into. I mean, we've got this whole interpretable AI movement, responsible AI movement and, and that type of stuff, which I think is really, uh, really important. But I think if, we, if we're increasingly interacting with a lot of different you know, machine learning models out, out there, um, it's worth thinking about um, you know, uh, responsibly. And I think one of the most important questions is how the human, fits in the loop. So I'll give one example that we're we're gonna see increasingly, um, let me get this right, machine learning models used in hiring flows in organizations, okay? So a chief people officer or head of HR or recruitment um, will be using it to filter resumes and that type of stuff. Now, they need to know about the accuracy of the model, sure. Um, but maybe they need to know about false negative rate and false positive rate uh, uh, as well. So it's how we educate people with respect to what the models are actually doing. Perhaps they really need to know about the type of biases that can happen in in recruiting models uh, as well. Um, Mozilla Labs put out a wonderful online game called, has a great name, it's called Survival of the Best Fit. Um, And you play a CEO going through a recruiting pipeline, then you've got to speak with VCs, so suddenly you need to automate your recruiting and that type of stuff. And you see how, how it goes wrong there. So I think there are a lot of dangers, um, which is part of what the question is is about. Um, And I think part of the movement to counter these dangers involves educating the humans who will be in the loop with respect to them, which will be a a lot of... Sorry to interrupt
1: your episode of 26.1 AI podcast. This is part one of a two-part series. We'll see you next week for the remainder of Coiled. Thank you.